Thanks, Paxton and Ashley and our team. How's everybody doing this morning? Man, thank you guys. Good, good to be with you all. Man, it's already been an incredible morning. Got to baptize Liz Woodard uh, at, at 9 a.m. Incredible. So if you see weird wet spots on me, that's what it's from, okay? Nothing else. That's it. Um, man, look, I, we're going to take some time in a moment to jump into a, a moment of corporate prayer before uh, we open the scriptures this morning. Uh, before we do that, I do want to echo Paxton's words. Man, VBS, an incredible, incredible week. Uh, there are some beautiful, faithful servants in here that look so sleepy this morning. Uh, and it's because they worked their tail off uh, this past week at VBS. And just, I mean, got to see uh, just just uh, 200 plus kids uh, and their families uh, by proxy get to experience who we are, uh, our desire to love people, to share the gospel, to, to our place, our, our, our longing to be a spot in this community where people can experience the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for them. Just an incredible week uh, of seeing the gospel proclaimed uh, to these children and families. So, man, thank you uh, to everyone that contributed, that gave snacks, that, that donated time, effort, energy. We really, really appreciated that. The Lord is using it in a powerful way. Uh, hey, for a moment of corporate prayer this morning. Uh, you know, we had four days of VBS, uh, and then Friday morning, uh, uh, I was obviously very, very awake by the time this, uh, we got a lot of small children. I was very awake by the time this news broke, but um, for the past few days, our, our country uh, has been filled with great rejoicing, I think. Uh, and also, uh, there's also been some, some real challenges as we've seen animosity uh, take place, uh, not only just amongst folks on different sides of the aisle, but believer to believer, other people, all kinds of stuff. Um, look, I, I just, I just want to tell you this morning, um, on behalf of our elders of leadership, our church, the Supreme Court ruling, while political in nature, informs more than politics and informs the very lives of people. And so, quite frankly and unequivocally, I want to say that this is not a political, it is in fact a gospel issue. Uh, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Psalm 139, 13 through 16, Jeremiah 1, 5, Matthew 18, 1 through 6. These and a host of other passages throughout the scriptures help us to understand that human life is sacred. That all people are created in God's image. That human life begins at conception. And that God knows us in his providence and his infinite wisdom before we are born. So we welcome this ruling and we praise the Lord for it. We also must seek to continue the work of the church to care for those with unexpected or unwanted pregnancies. It's, it's going to be our job and our responsibility to meet people in the midst of their pain and their confusion and their fear in hopes that they would see Double Oak Chelsea truly as a place that is a house of refuge, proclaiming that Christ is their hope. And it's our opportunity and it's our joy, quite frankly, to provide them with not just spiritual, but also physical and emotional support that they need to care for their children. Or when that's not possible, to provide for those children through foster care and or adoption. We must also, in humility and obedience, and this is the hard part for all of us, to love every person. That views abortion differently than we do. That does not mean we back down from what we believe. What it does mean is that we love people well as Christ would. And we have a responsibility to recognize that this issue affects people in our congregation this morning. Uh, and if you've been directly affected 
by abortion, I want you to hear the words of Scripture found in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is my call, my challenge to you. Receive forgiveness. Trust in and believe the gospel. Be forgiven. And then as we come to pray, let's, let's pray, but not just now, not just in this one moment, okay? This is a, a catalytic moment in life for us. It's historical in nature. There are many of us that will be drawn to pray rapidly and fervently in this moment, but let's not just do it now. Let's pray continually that abortion would end in all of our states and that people would recognize that the life of a person is the gracious gift. It's a blessing from God and that all of our hope is bound up in Christ Jesus. Can we pray that? Not just today, but continually. If you will, pray with me. Heavenly Father, this morning we praise you and we are thankful. And God, we confess that we believe the words of Genesis that were created in your image. God, the, the words of Psalm 139 that teach us, that help us understand that we are knit together in our mother's womb. The words of Jeremiah 1.5 that would say that, that we are foreknown before we're born. God, the words of, of the gospel of Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 6, that help us to understand Jesus' love for children. Father, would you help us understand your deep love for us and allow us to treat all life accordingly. God, there is work to be done, and I pray, Father, that, that we would be a faithful part of that, to love on, to care for not only women, but, but men and those who come to us in a place of need. God, would we be those who... Father, we open our Bibles to them, but God, we open our homes to them. Father, we open our wallets. We would give truly from what you've given to us so that we could see life not only be sustained, but thrive with the hope of Jesus. Father, we ask you to give us gospel humility that would cause us to recognize and to see that while others may believe differently than us, and quite frankly, Father, believe even lies, things that are untrue. God, would you cause us to love them and recognize that that person is one of whom we cannot speak ill because they are truly created in your image. And if we believe that for one, we've got to believe it for everybody. Help us to believe that, Lord. Finally, Father, for those that are a part of this congregation that are are struggling with, wrestling with the reality of an abortion in their past, Father, would you allow them to experience forgiveness through your son, Jesus Christ? If they're a believer and they trust in you, they've confessed that sin, Father, help them to experience your peace and the recognition that all of that sin is gone because of what Christ has done. Father, we pray all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.
All right, this morning we are in Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 10. It's where we're going to be in a moment. Philippians 4, 10 through 23. This is week 8. We are closing out a series in Philippians called Gospel Humility, where we've seen this beautiful thread that's woven throughout this epistle, this letter in Philippians, the desire that Paul has to teach these believers, these people who are faithful This group of people living in this area in Macedonia, this faithful church who's loved him, who's supported him, who's invested so much in Paul's ministry and, quite frankly, just in his heart. He's longing for them to grow, to mature. One of the key things that he frames for them is an understanding of, throughout this letter, what it means to be humble. How to live a life that is filled with gospel humility. And one of my favorite things that Paul does at the close of this letter, at the close of this writing, is he takes an opportunity to tell his story. Where he is, what's happening with him truly in his life. Because if you're like me, I bet for a lot of your life, you've probably picked up the Bible, you've probably picked up the scriptures, and you've viewed it in so many ways like a textbook. Like I, it, it is, it's, it's teaching and it's instruction. And when we find that word law, specifically in referential to the, to the Old Testament, that word law, it really means the teaching of God. But often we just open up the book, the scriptures, and we want an answer. We want a recipe. We want a formula. We want a secret to be found. Just what's, what's the chapter and verse? What's the page? What's the section? How do I get that thing that I want? And the beauty of the scriptures is so often we find that God gives us the teaching, the instruction, the life that we long for in the midst of story. In the midst of the real circumstances of one's life. That happens in Paul's life and we get to see kind of the end of this letter where he is in his story. And the beautiful understanding that embedded in the midst of that we also get the thing that we long for. Because Paul's going to describe this secret to us this morning and we get to understand how gospel humility plays into it this is philippians chapter 4 beginning in verse 10 we're going to read through 23 to close it out and here's what it says i rejoice in the lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me you were indeed concerned for me but you had no opportunity not that i'm speaking of being in need for i've learned in whatever situation i am to be content i know how to be brought low and i know how to abound In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. 
The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord to which we say together. Thanks be to God. So Paul gives in so many ways in these final verses, these concluding portions of Philippians 4, his story, where he is. And we get a big picture, kind of look at what he's been walking through and the way that the Philippian church has come alongside him, has partnered with him and really come to his aid in a number of ways. But because of the secret that he describes, we get the incredible reality that Truly come what may, no matter what had come at Paul, he would have been fine. Every need met. Everything would be okay. Because of the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look back into verse 10. This is what Paul says. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that you've revived your concern for me. Now, what Paul says when he says you've revived your concern for me, if we just read that in a cursory way, we might think that this means that the Philippians went through a season where they didn't think about him. They just weren't worried about Paul. But I think the reality is we know this life that quite often we care for others, but there's a certain circumstance, there's this catalytic moment, there's this thing that happens that draws us to the place where we say, I've got to express love for you. I've got to express care for you. I need to come to your aid. I need to help you in some way, shape, or form because of this drastic event. Well, for the Philippians, hearing of Paul's imprisonment, him being in chains, is that moment. And so what Paul does is he acknowledges, he says, look, you revived your concern for me because of what's happening with me in this moment. This word revived, it actually means springing into bloom. It's kind of the idea of what we sang about this morning. And I love how that dovetails in so many ways is this idea of God bringing spring out of winter. And that's what this word revive really means. It means that there's this new blooming, there's this new thing that is happening. There's this opportunity in Paul's circumstance and season. Now look at verse 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. It's hard for us, without understanding the full story, to grasp the gravity of what Paul is saying here. He is saying that no matter where I am, no matter what life looks like, I've learned to be content. This is not the language we expect to find from someone who is physically in chains. I want you to think about that. He's not in a place where he has physical freedom. I don't know about you, but like the older I get, I, I think I'm doing this like claustrophobic thing, right? Like the like more, like I don't like riding on the airplane as much. I don't like being trapped in the spaces. I want to have like the breathing room. I want the area. This guy can't move in any way, shape, or form beyond what these chains limit him to. And he is saying... Quite boldly, I've learned to be content with this. You also need to know that when he says content, he does not mean okay. He means satisfied. This is not just like I'll manage, but it's I'll live and I'll live well. How can he get to that place? Well, it's because, look at what verse 12 says. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. 
I think the wildest thing about life for us is that quite often we think that struggle is a thing that we're supposed to experience perhaps even early on, but then at some place we move beyond it. Paul says here, I know how to be brought low and how to abound. But what Paul is not describing is a life where I started out in a lowly fashion and I graduated and I moved up and I got beyond that. I went to this place that's the way that we think life ought to go. Which is like if, it, if we look at what we think life should be on a graph, it's up and to the right. Constantly moving, constantly progressing. We're accumulating assets. We're making profits. We're in a place where we're building equity or wealth or relationships or a number of different things. But the language that Paul uses here is he says, look, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. And the way that he states this emphatically says that the Christian life is one life that is not up and to the right. Instead, it's a life where there are going to be big time lows. Where we're going to be brought low. Not that being low is a thing of the past and we've moved beyond that now. No, instead, that we'll have trouble. And he says, present tense, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any of these moments. And look at what he says continually. He says, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Now look at what those words say. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. There's something really unique about this because I think you and I think that we face two of these things and two of them we don't. Like we face hunger and need. Those are things to be faced. That's adversity in so many ways. But plenty and abundance, what does our life look like when we have plenty and when we're we're, we're experiencing the abundance of life in a physical, material way? I bet, and I'm just like going out on a limb here, I would bet your prayer life is a little more engaging, dramatic, earnest in the times when you're in the hunger need mode truly versus the abundance and plenty Paul says that both of these things are things to be faced that these things are are, are to truly be pushed into guarded, attacked there's preparedness language here Why would he say that? Paul recognizes that hunger and need feel extremely detrimental. That that's got to be truly faced, that there's a challenge there. But what Paul's also saying is he's saying that, guess what? Abundance and plenty must also be faced. Why do we have to face those things? Because throughout the course of this writing, Paul has made so clear 
that the gospel life, that the life of believing in the gospel, to, the way to live in the reality of the gospel and the way in which we live it out before the world to see, to demonstrate the love of Christ, it all hinges on recognizing our identity and who we are. And so he says that these things that are perceivably on so many levels good and blessings, they have to be faced in a certain way because these things can't define us. These things can't be the things that cause us to believe everything's okay. And these things can't be the things that cause us to believe that everything's not okay. Because guess what? In Jesus Christ, there is no need. Everything is okay. Because of what Jesus has done in his life and his death and his resurrection, the gospel is what causes Paul to recognize that no matter where he is, no matter what he's facing, there is nothing more precious than Jesus He says it in this way, I've learned the secret. What is the secret? Because that's powerful language. And quite frankly, I think that's what a number of us spiritually want to know. Like, what is the secret to this? What's the secret for my relationship with God? The secret for my marriage? The secret for friendship? The secret for all of the things that I desire? Truly bound up in what he's going to say here in this moment. You ever watch City Slickers? You ever see that movie? All right, some of you are already doing it, right? Mitch, Billy Crystal, is told by Jack Palance that, that there's meaning of life, the secret of life. It's this one thing. He just kind of holds up this one finger. He doesn't really expound upon this. He never enumerates on it. He never, in detail, says what this is. But Mitch, in his own way, through his life and his circumstances, he finds out. And then he's able to kind of tell his friends and even his family that there's this one thing. This is Paul's one thing moment. And this is what he says. That this is the secret. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The secret that Paul is talking about is true gospel humility and the recognition that everything that he has is in Jesus Christ. That there is nothing else. The secret to every scenario, every moment, everything that we encounter is all bound up in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In God's providence, in Christ's precious offering for us of himself, and the Spirit's work in our life, that this is the secret of facing these things. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And this is all going to make sense as we understand what that verse means. Because if, if you're like me, you grew up in a world and lived in a world where this is very Princess Bride. Like, I don't think that means what you think it means. Because we've seen this on iBlack. We've seen this on bumper stickers. We've seen this on signs at college game day, right? We've seen this around us on the covers of journals, all kinds of different places. And it's not a bad thing. And the intent in so many ways is good. 
But we got to understand what these words mean. And I think hopefully we can understand together why these words are a part of other words that can't just be plucked out and pulled out and used for whatever thing we want. When Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, he's talking about, just as he has throughout this entire letter, his present circumstance. And that is the fact that he is in change and likely await, he is awaiting sentencing. And that sentencing perhaps will be death. This is why we get the language in chapter 1 that truly says to live as Christ and to die as gain. He talks about in chapter 1 and verse 13, the imperial guard, the people that are watching him, the people that are monitoring him, the people that are keeping him in chains. And, and the grave reality is that Paul perhaps will die as a result of what he's doing in preaching the gospel and not yielding to the emperor, the Caesar, When we read that verse and it says, I can do, I want you to understand that word do is much more closely linked to endure than it is do. So in so many ways, try to see it in this way. I can endure all things through Christ who gives me strength. Because this is what Paul is saying. This is not like, I can get the job language. This is not, I can Get the hit that our team needs to win the game. This is not the, I can build the business. This is not, I can make this accomplishment, this thing happen. That is not the language that Paul's using because Paul would have no reason to describe anything like that for where he is. He's in chains. So you know what this language is? He's saying, I can endure death through Christ who strengthens me. I can lose my physical life through Christ who strengthens me. Not a great bumper sticker that I think most people really would want to put on their car. All right? True, but that's less desirable, and I get it. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying, I can do this. And you've got to understand the object of this is the one, Jesus Christ, who strengthens him. This is the humility, the gospel humility that Paul possesses. He says, everything's a gift. All of it's grace. All that God has given me, all that I have is from him. It comes from no other place. And as a result, I'm in chains, but I'm free. Try and kill me. I'll be alive. None of these things can alter the reality of the finished work of Christ. So we got to understand this scripture and where it fits into God's story. Instead of trying to rip it out and just kind of put it into our own. In whatever kind of way we want. This is what we need to understand. The words of this, of this scripture in Philippians 4.13. What it's saying is, is that Christ is so Valuable. Christ is so perfect. His life and his death and his resurrection are so effectual that people like you and me can endure death because we're strengthened by him. Because his strength is made perfect in our weakness. 
Because his beauty is demonstrated in our pain. Looking at verse 14 at the close, and this is what Paul says. He says, it's kind of you to share my trouble. And this is beautiful language that surrounds what it means to really live in the reality of the gospel with people. This is the Philippian church bearing burden, coming alongside him, not saying, Paul didn't say, hey, yeah, it was kind of you to send all your money. That was helpful. He first acknowledges that they are in partnership, in gospel life together. That they live in a reality where they're in community with one another that God has established through Jesus and which they're unified by in the spirit. This is something that is happening that is more precious than whatever they could give. He says, kind of you to share my trouble, to take part in what I'm walking through. And then he says this in verse 15. You know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, there was no other church that entered into partnership of giving or receiving apart from you. So he praises this group of believers, this church that's come alongside him and said, we want to see the gospel go forth. And so they give this, this whole section is truly in so many ways, Paul thanking them in a very practical way about what they've done for him in a monetary fashion. So this is part of the story. This is what, and these are the words of the scripture that don't sound as inspiring in so many ways to us. They don't sound attractive to us. They don't feel revelatory. But look at the amazing things that are happening here. God's people, through their faithfulness, are giving. And Paul's life has been impacted in this incredible way. And when we get to the end of this, you're going to see exactly how. And Paul says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Here's what Paul's saying. He didn't come after them saying, I, I'm soliciting money for this ministry. I need this money from you. Instead, he's saying, everything that you have given, I want that to be fruit that increases to your credit. So God honors your faithfulness and what you've done. Then he goes on to say, I've received full payment and more. Everything that I need, I've been given. Epaphroditus has given all the things to me. And this is his friend, the one who's come to know Christ through him, the one who delivers uh, the news to him uh, at, at, of the Philippian church in Rome, and the one who is going to give this letter back to the Philippians that Paul has written. Um, he gives all these things, and then Paul recognizes with his Old Testament language, this fragrant offering, this sacrifice acceptable. He acknowledges in so many ways that this is what the life of the church looks like, giving of means and beyond, serving in, in powerfully demonstrative ways to give to the needs of ministry. And then he says this profound thing at 19. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So as Paul begins to close and say, everything that you've given, this is amazing. I'm so thankful for this. But just before he lets them off, Look, before he hangs up the phone, he says, don't forget that it's Christ Jesus who meets every single need that we have. There's not a thing that we do or a thing that, that we take part in that is good apart from what God has given us. So that language in James in chapter 117, every good and perfect gift, it means every. All of these things are from the Lord. All the needs that they have are going to be supplied through Jesus Christ. How can they believe that? How can they trust in that? Well, this is how. Because the one who is in chains, who is potentially awaiting death, is the one who is saying, I have no needs. 
Everything is met. God has given me everything. Christ has given me everything. The spirit indwelling me is my experience of receiving everything. This is the one saying, Christ will meet all your needs. His words can be trusted. He closes with this benediction. To, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. But he kind of gives this P.S., these last few words, and look at what he says. He says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. That's normal language for Paul. Paul would write a letter that's normal language for, for, for gospel writers to, to, to close in a way where they would finish a letter. They would finish a writing with greetings for those that they had in common. But look at this at what happens in 22. He says, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Now, we've talked for seven weeks about the fact that Philippi, this place, is like a little Rome. It's in this area in Macedonia, miles and miles away from Rome, but it's under Roman jurisdiction. It's a Roman province. It looks like, it feels like a little version of Rome. And what we learned and what we saw about Rome historically is that Rome was really cool with you worshiping Jesus as long as you worshiped the emperor as well. Rome was great about you doing whatever kind of weird religious stuff you wanted to do as long as the real allegiance was to the emperor, to the empire, to this culture that had been established. I want you to read verse 22 in this way. All the saints greet you Especially those who are with and work for the one in charge who's probably going to kill you. It doesn't have a scriptural ring to it. I'll give you that. All right. It makes sense why it's not written like that. But this is the reality. Paul says all the saints greet you, especially those who work for Caesar. Who work for the guy that's going to maybe kill me. But all these guys say, what's up as well? I want you to understand the gravity of what this means. There are believers, there are people, because he calls them saints. There are people in the Roman Empire, in the Imperial Guard. If you look back in chapter 1 of Philippians, chapter 1, and you flip back to verse 13, you're going to see this description of the Imperial Guard. And this is how we can kind of understand that Paul is really more so under house arrest because there's these guards he's getting to influence. These different people that he's getting to influence and have, his, and have real lengthy conversations with. In such a way that they're going back to, to Caesar's household. And they're telling other imperial guards of the hope of Jesus Christ. God is doing the wildest thing in this moment. We're getting this picture of people who not only are the least likely to believe in so many ways. They're the ones who are the closest to the one who is the least likely to believe. And God is doing this through Paul's ministry. How is he doing it? Did Paul like ride into Rome with a cavalry? Did he use militant force to bring people even in Caesar's household to the gospel? No. What did he do? He was imprisoned. He was in chains. 
And this is how the gospel goes forth? It is. This is how the gospel goes forth. Through somebody's life. Just through their story. And quite frankly, not all the fun, victorious, incredible things we want to hear story in the brokenness and the messiness and the pain of their story. That ought to give us hope. You know what the recipe is for people around us coming to know and experience Jesus Christ? It's us trusting Christ in our brokenness. It's us demonstrating gospel humility that in the worst of times, we really don't even consider the times because Christ is above all times. He matters to us completely. There is more in Christ than our circumstance. There's more in Jesus than any of our present moments. He's the author of all. He's the sustainer of all. He's the completer of all. And the work that Paul writes early in this book, the work that he has done in us, it will come to completion through Jesus. And this is the last thing that Paul longs to say. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Here's what Paul's doing in this moment. He's highlighting grace, I truly believe, in effort to help believers recognize, in his very last words, the profound reality of gospel humility. Because this is what it means to be in Christ. You admit that you didn't help get here at all. That you bring no good thing. That there is nothing that you can offer except a boatload of sin. That's what you and I bring to the table. That grace is unmerited favor. That the experience of gospel life is not us getting a little better or trying to improve upon the good person that people think that we are, but it's confessing and recognizing that we are broken and that we are in need of a Savior. Coming to a place where we humbly recognize we can't save ourselves and trusting in what Jesus has done, his perfect life, his effectual death, and his eternal resurrection. That's what gives us life. This is the last word Paul would write to the Philippian church. And he would say it in this way. Everything is grace. All that we have. So live your life in light of this gospel humility. We've looked for eight weeks. We've seen this humility emerge in all of these amazing places. Look back to chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. And this is what you find. Paul's thanksgiving, his prayer. He's saying, every time I think of you people, I have to thank the Lord. He's recognizing in that that he can't live life on his own. He needs other people. He needs to live in the reality of community with others. Look ahead in chapter 1 and see what you find. Specifically, when you get to the places in verse 20 and onward, you see Paul say humbly, man, to live is Christ. Anything that I have is of him, but to die is gain. Then I'm with him face to face. In verse 27, we get the picture of what we're called to do in the Christian life. To live a life only that this would be the main thing in a manner worthy of the gospel. How do we do that? We do it through humility. Because then what he says is stand firm in what Christ has done. We sang it this morning. We stand on what Christ has done. 
not what we've done. Look into chapter 2, and you get this picture that we're supposed to live humble lives with each other where we think not only about the things that we need, but we look into interests of others. We care about others even more than ourselves. How do you get to the place where you do that? Look into verses 6 through 11, and you get this beautiful picture of Christ as not only the model of all humility, but the motivation for humility. I can rest in, I can trust in the fact that Christ took on my likeness, that he took the form of a servant, and that he died on a cross so that I could live. We get that drawn out for us even more in chapter 3. In those first 10 verses, we get this picture that righteousness is not our own. So I've got to be humble. How can I not be humble? The nature of the gospel is humility. That I have nothing, and because of Christ, he's made me his own. Now I have everything. All those riches are mine. Look at the latter part of chapter 3, and you see this striving, this language that Paul's using, imploring believers to go and live lives, trusting in Jesus. Where does that come from? We rest in humbly what he's done for us. And at the start of chapter 4, we got that amazing picture of the peace of God that could transcend our minds. We long for that. What is it? It's been accomplished in Christ. The peace we long for with God as Romans 5, 1 would say, Jesus makes peace for us with God by the blood of the cross. As we've read through Philippians, nothing has emerged more than the reality that we're called to humility. And this morning as our worship team comes and we close our service, man, what better place to experience humility than the table? To come and s- celebrate the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. So as our worship team comes, and we've got elders and deacons that are going to come uh, and serve this table, man, what an incredible opportunity to profess our own humility, to, to, to recognize it's Christ's body that's broken for me. It's his blood that's shed for me. This is where life is found. This is where all hope is found. This is where all Joy is found. It's found in what Christ has done. So we get to celebrate and we get to eat together this morning as a church. It's an incredibly exciting thing. I want to say a couple things before we come to the table. One, if you have not trusted in Christ, if you have not believed in Christ and repented of your sins and professed Christ as Savior, I would urge you, don't come to this table. Remain where you are. Um, Do not come to this table. Uh, It would just be ritual. It would be rote. It would mean absolutely nothing. Instead, I would encourage you to believe the gospel. To receive this truth that, that you're a sinner. And that you're in need of a savior. And that Christ has lived the life that you and I could not live. Died a death beyond anything we could imagine in order to restore us and allow us to have union with God, relationship with God the Father through what Jesus has done that we can now experience in the Holy Spirit. I would ask you to believe the gospel and find one of us after this service and and talk with us and tell us about what the Lord is doing in your heart. Lastly, I would say so much, and we say this a lot at the Lord's Supper, but so much of my life I've come to this table worried about a sin that I committed this week, thinking I couldn't come eat this meal. That I've done something to make, to, to make the, this meal something that I'm not worthy of. Here's the reality. I'm not worthy of it, and neither are you. 
But on the night he's crucified, Jesus tells his disciples to do this. To celebrate this. To remember what is to come. His death. And ultimately his resurrection. So come to this table. with If you've trusted in Christ, come eat this meal. Come receive and taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray together uh, and then I would encourage you to come. Heavenly Father, would you put gospel humility in our hearts? Would you draw us to a place where we recognize who you are more deeply and what you've done for us? That as you long to form us into gospel people, Father, we recognize the way you long to do this is through humility. God, the true picture and the beauty of humility is found in your son, Jesus, who not only took our likeness, but took the form of a servant and died so that we might have life. This morning, Father, we celebrate the benefit that all the riches, all the things that we need have been supplied to us from you, Father, through Jesus, by the Spirit. And we confess that we long to grow in our understanding of the secret, to rest in gospel humility for all that you've done for us. We ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Hey, grab somebody, friend, neighbor, someone next to you. uh, Come, taste and see the Lord's good. Let's enjoy this meal together.